Welcome to episode 207 and whoa, this episode is going to melt your brain. Have you ever wondered where the plant-based narrative originated from? Who started this whole idea? Avoid meat, eat plants, healthy people are all vegans. Where did this come from? Curiously, many people find it difficult to believe that what exists today is here because of nefarious intentions a long time beforehand. Most people believe that what exists is here because it just should be and this reality that has been created would never have been created if it wasn't the best version of what was possible. However, these ideas and concepts are actually as old as the Bible and as such have had very different groups, organizations, political leaders and a ton of money strategically pushing these health and nutrition narratives for centuries. You're probably thinking, what? Religion, nutrition and science all in bed together? What a filthy thought that is. (laughs) If you've never heard of this connection before, it's okay. You're in the vast majority. Most people have no idea. In fact, most health professionals have no idea. And I would say 99.9% of them, which is the whole point of this episode, because with the knowledge you'll gain from today's show, you can begin creating a healthier world in a way that moves in the direction of true human health and not creating more victims to the lifelong cycle of medication. Hold on tight. We're going in. Let's dive into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Any wild news going on in your world lately? I've been lucky enough to have worked with so many fantastic women that are ready, willing, and committed to focus on their health, their body, and more importantly, their mind, with a long-term vision, understanding that these things take time and they start as soon as you commit to yourself. And so, if you want to join us in 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. The link to join us will be in the show notes below. On the topic of rabbit food and furthermore plant-based dogma, I want to introduce you to Belinda Fetke, who is one of the most important health disruptors of the last few decades, working tirelessly as a change maker, challenging the health benefit claims of the last 50 years of low-fat, high-carb food and health messaging from our government and healthcare workers. She spent the last eight years delving into the history of nutrition science, only to discover the unexpected influence of religious ideology and its intersection with commercially vested interests, intent on demonizing meat, animal protein, and fat. The relationship between religion and nutrition has shaped our plant-based or vegan-leaning dietary health guidelines for over 100 years now. Belinda's primary concerns have included a lack of transparency in research and nutrition policy that may negatively impact health outcomes for people with type 2 diabetes and the attempts to silence healthcare professionals from discussing health benefits of ancestral diets and evolutionary science. And as a deplatform truth-seeking, truth-speaking health professional myself, <laughs> I'm so pumped to bring you this conversation. <laughs> and just before we do, just a quick little disclaimer on behalf of Belinda. She's not anti-vegan and she's not anti-religion. She's pro-choice, especially when it comes to health. And I can definitely match that vibe any day of the week. So, Belinda, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks so much, Maddie. I'm very well. Thank you. Oh, it's so good to have you here. You're such... Um, this is possibly one of the most important podcast episodes we've ever recorded because... It gets to the core of why I even started the podcast in the beginning after my own journey through the hospital system and 
learning about all of the things that aren't done that would normally lead towards health. So maybe a good place to start is possibly with how your journey began into this space because it's definitely deep down a rabbit hole that many people would have never even knew existed. It, it even surprised me, Maddie, I can assure you. Um, I guess going right back to the beginning of my journey was really Gary's health journey, my husband. He's an orthopaedic surgeon, was an orthopaedic surgeon and here in Tasmania. And 20 years ago, he might have seen someone once every I don't know, year that required an amputation of a non-healing ulcerated toe or foot, little debridements or even an amputation of a lower leg as an orthopaedic surgeon looking after people with complications of type 2 diabetes. So it was rare. But in 2014, Gary was seeing someone every single week in his hospital clinic requiring some sort of debridement or amputation. And he said, it, this is just does not make sense. So he started looking at the hospital menus and when he realised that the diabetes menu actually included three desserts per day, and people were coming in under his care with, and they're in hospital, they had out of control blood glucose levels and he's trying to heal them. There's, you can't give an, um, an antibiotic for this sort of infection. It, well, it's not an infection, it's just um, ulcerating um, foot. So he really had to try and work out how he could possibly control blood glucose. Now, he is a doctor. He ha- did study for the first couple of years biochemistry, physiology, anatomy, all those things that everybody does. But medicine in particular, and I probably dietetics and all of those other areas as well, but medicine in particular, spend two years building you up, you learn all the systems, and then they spend the next three to four years funneling you through surgical, medical band-aiding of sick care. That's <laughs> what I've come to understand. And when you just learn how to band-aid sick care, you forget that maybe there's another option. Maybe food is medicine, but that's, that's another story. So Gary was diagnosed with a very aggressive pituitary tumour when he, in 2000 when he was about 36, 37. And um, this tumour, when they did the PET scan, lit up like a Christmas tree to the glucose they injected into him. And it was, it was extensive and at the time it was found, so he required surgery, he required very extensive radiotherapy and he was on chemotherapy for about 11 and a half years on and off which is a huge commitment to anybody um he was on a a monthly injection but he was unwell for a few days before and a few days after it Mm -hmm. and it is this was just something that he just accepted was part of his life he had to have a second lot of surgery in 2004 but by 2011 they said we really don't know what else we can do to slow down the growth Now, after he'd had his original surgery, he was in hospital and he developed a complication of the, I suppose it was a complication or an irritation of the tumour through the surgery and he developed diabetes insipidus, which is very different to the diabetes everyone's sort of aware of. And diabetes insipidus means you can't actually concentrate your urine. So you have to drink to match that urine output. And in Gary's case, it was 12 to 13 litres of fluid a day. Oh, wow. And that is incredibly exhausting for a body to make that much urine yeah. you know you think oh gosh you know besides how much time you've spend going to the toilet you know it's it, it physiology the physiological repercussion of all of that as well was huge i mean gary had time off after his surgery obviously but in when he was in hospital they said what is going to be really boring 
we suggest you drink fruit juice. <laughs> so you know, we, we didn't click. Maddie, no yeah. one gave any idea or any concept of the thought that sugar was potentially driving the growth of Gary's particular cancer. And so in 2011, he turned to Dr. Google which a lot of people do. <laughs> which doctors <laughs> say don't do. <laughs> yeah, well, he did. <laughs> and um, when he turned to Dr. Google, he found some amazing people talking about their correlation between sugar and cancer in America. Mm -hmm. um, Colin Champ and Dominic D'Agostino looking in particular at this space. And he'd also been given a book around this time from David Gillespie, <laughs> from a friend, yep. Sweet Poison. And honestly, he did think, what could a lawyer possibly know about the harms of sugar that I don't know? I'm a doctor. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, he learned a few things from David Gillespie. Yeah, and, I, I um, think most of our listeners probably know David Gillespie and, yeah, his books are <laughs> fantastic. They are. And um, interestingly, the metabolism of fructose was only worked out in 2010 by a guy called Luke Tappy. So, you know, Gary's looking in 2011, but really the – the mechanism was perfectly outlined in 2010. So to him, it made scientific, you know, it just it made, sorry, sense, scientific, <laughs> made scientific sense um, to him to consider removing sugar from his diet. And if you knew my husband, when he makes a decision to do something, it's instant. So sugar went out the door. And, um, but I think that fascinating thing is, again, that medical model where they're taught about all these things and then sent down a pathway and taught that, you know, to base your diet on cereals and grains and they're the most important part of the day and they give you energy and all of these things. It took a few months for Gary to actually think about the fact, and I spoke to a doctor, Lucy Burns, recently, and she said, savoury sugar. We understand the concept of sweet sugar but really carbohydrates are savoury sugars because the minute you put them in your mouth and ingest them, they become glucose. Yeah. So, you know, again, he goes, I can't believe it. I'm so trained in all of this. And why did it take so many months to work this next layer out? So for him, for his cancer, he was able to slow it down so much. He could come off chemotherapy and he's been off since 2011, which is a miracle. Amazing, um, yeah. And, you know, I just think it's really important to look at that. So then he took that knowledge because he actually reversed his own um, pre-diabetes, his blood pressure, like all of his health issues. And he said, what do I think about this for my patients? You know, this makes sense. So in 2012, that's when he started recommending it, that people reduce sugar. 2013, 2014, he was starting to talk a little bit about carbohydrates, but his main message in the hospital was just the crap sugar that was available to his patients and really sending their blood glucose out of control. And he was reported to the medical board in 2014, even though he was now starting to talk about sugar and carbs and polyunsaturated oils, the whole metabolic health crisis that we've yeah. gotten. Um, so he was reported and... He just thought, surely they're not going to look at this. Like, this is ridiculous. I'm talking about sugar. Yeah. <laughs> People know sugar's harmful, surely. But no, the medical board of Tasmania were totally unaware that sugar could cause any problems except for dental caries. And they investigated him for two and a half years in a star chamber investigation. Like, he was not allowed any access to 
um, a lawyer or any ability to fight it in court. There was no appeal. He just had to keep supplying information to them from all the questions that they asked. And at the end of two and a half years, the determination they came out with was that Gary was, was, it was lifelong and non-appellable and he was never allowed to speak about nutrition to his patients. And the, the petty thing at the end, Maddie, was the fact that they said, even if LCHF becomes accepted best practice, you can never talk about it. Now, wow. surely the whole point of APRA is protecting the public and if you were a doctor and not providing best practice, you'd be in trouble. Yeah. Absolutely. And now if it becomes best practice, a doctor has been requested to not speak about it. Yeah. So and then another two years, uh, I, I started a website. I support Gary and um, my godson calls it, I love Gary, but that's okay. He's a doctor oh, and he says he won't. He says it's really hard, but I can't refer people there. I can't send people to I love Gary. But <laughs> I think the whole point is, you know, I started this website. We had incredible support from People on social media, like the the tribe on mm-hmm. Facebook, were just so supportive and so incredible. They wrote to the APRA Medical Board. They were hounded. And so after two years, we had to take it to the National Ombudsman because, as I say, it couldn't be appealed in a court of law. So the National Ombudsman finally went through enough and sent it to another um, medical board. And the, the concept was that it was overturned because of procedural issues. Mm-hmm. That's the only way they could do it. But the procedural issues is what my research sort of, you know, stemmed down to. And and that's my rabbit hole <laughs> when I was looking yeah. for those things. Such an impressive, like, like the fact that you um, went down that rabbit hole, you know, on behalf of Gary and with Gary and on that journey together is really admirable. And, and a lot of people, like I know if going on my own journey, because my, my light bulb moment, in a cancer hospital was the same mm. thing was it's yeah. like people come in they have glucose radioactively labeled glucose water and their yeah. cancer lights up and then you go to the hallmarks of cancer and one of them which is is in every textbook is the warburg effect which yes. is which is the you know extreme sugar metabolism of cancer cells and and naively in my early 20s i just sort of said to my professor why don't we like take sugar out of people's diets. Um, and he laughed. He laughed at me and was like, oh, Maddie, if, if that was that simple, you know, we would have figured it out a long time ago. And, yeah, that's, that's where I begun a, a somewhat similar research yeah. journey of being like, one and one does not equal two here. And, yes, <laughs> yes. I'm in my early 20s, but I'm sure this, there's some logic here. <laughs> yeah, well, a friend of mine is um, a, a pathology into that and she was saying we actually – put cells into test tubes and we feed them sugar to make them grow and then we work out how to medicate to stop them growing. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, is that really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there something that you're thinking, maybe if we stop giving it sugar, it will stop growing anyway? Exactly. So Gary had um, joined up with Rod Taylor, um, Low Carb Down Under, a group yeah. that developed it. I think they started in about 2012, Rod and Jamie Hayes. But Gary joined them in 2013 and so he was quite a vocal advocate and supporter of this group. And when I'd go along to their meetings and and their events, they were talking science. Like these people were talking about the science, metabolism, you know, all of these things. And I was thinking, why is none of this being accepted by the rule makers? You know, they're going blue in the face talking about the science and and it's it's a joke. So. 
That's when I decided to look at the expert witness that was brought in by the APRA Medical Board into Gary's case. This is where it gets juicy. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is where it gets juicy. I had cognitive dissonance, I promise you. I spent many, many, many hours looking up this man. Well, first of all, I actually looked him up to see what his qualifications were and he, he was one of the biggest guns in nutrition science in the Southeast Asia Pacific region. And when I look back at his earlier writings and the earlier studies that he'd done, he was really anti-tobacco and smoking, and he was one of the first people to talk about it. And I thought, you know, this man actually sounds a bit like Gary. Gary's, Gary refused to do elective surgery on people who smoked. And because we live in a small town here in Launceston, if he had someone booked in for surgery and it was taking three or four months for them to get in, and he walked down the street and saw them smoking, he said, oh, sorry, I'm calling Joan, it's another six weeks because he could see that people, their health outcomes were compromised by yeah. the effects of smoking. So yeah, I was seeing this man, was like, oh, they're actually very similar, you know, standing up, talking about things. So I wrote to him every email I could possibly write to to talk about Gary's story and, and why it was so important that Gary was doing what he was doing and what he was seeing. I, I don't think he liked it. So anyway, I just decided after I didn't hear back from him on any of those platforms, that he must work for the sugar industry. So off I went. Delve, delve. And I'm, I'm not technology-minded, as you know. I struggle to even get onto this podcast with you. So my research purely is anything I can find on the internet, but I am very dogged at looking for things. And if things don't make sense, then I just keep trying different ways to find the information. And it turns out he didn't work for the sugar industry. He worked for the cereal industry. In fact, he worked for sanitarium cereal industry. I think, hmm, that's interesting. Vaguely hit the back of my head. I was going, yeah, sanitarium, it's owned by a church. But, again, it didn't really trigger much at all. I just thought, wow, cereal and, and this sort of thing. So, but after a little while, it was, I started to find it fascinating about what sanitarium was talking about as the commercial arm of the Seventh-day Adventist church um, interestingly, they pay no tax on any of the products or the programs that they run throughout Australia, Asia, and even into America mm-hmm. because they've got the church's charity status. So I think that's interesting. And while we all may be aware that Sanitarium makes wheat bix you know, Aussie kids are wheat bix kids, and I can show you mine were, um, they, that they also make a lot of other products, not just So Good and Up and Go, which really isn't health food at all. But they have um, a brand called Life Health Foods. They make the alternative meat company or they have the alternative meat company and the alternative milk company. And up until a few months ago, because I've been very loud on social media and talking, um, up until a few months ago, the alternative meat company had all the vegan propaganda on its website. It had, you know, cows are causing global warming, a third of Australians are, are eating plants, so that makes us turning, that makes us into vegans. And this is not the same messaging that people see from the advertised sanitarium health and wellbeing company. So I just started looking at why they were trying to create all these foods. And as you say, that took me right back to the beginning of the church in 1863 and understanding that their prophetess, Ellen G. White, she claimed to have received over 2,000 visions and dreams from God in her lifetime. And her very first major reform vision, which was the same year that the church was incorporated in 1863, was this vision from God that 
fruit, fruit, nuts, and seeds were the God-appointed diet for man, and these were these were the foods that were found in the biblical Garden of Eden diet, Garden of Eden. And so, she spent her life, and her followers have spent their lives, and their purpose and their mission is to find alternatives to flesh meat, milk, eggs, and butter. And that's how she set up sanitarium in the 1800s when she came. So understanding that other people, temperance health reformers were talking about um, the effects of flesh meat. And different to the temperance prohibition, which was specifically talking about alcohol and then later on suffrage and um, abolition of slavery, the temperance health reform movement really started in the early 1800s in America. And it was based on the fact that they believed that meat defiled people spiritually, mentally, and physically. And the thought was that if you ate meat, you became like an animal. Well, I've seen a lot of very docile animals as well, but, you know, that was the concept that if you were a meat eater, that you would be bad. And and was that connected to the the belief of the of reincarnation back that you could possibly become an animal in in a, in a future life not the temperance health reform movement but right. absolutely going right back to the eastern mysticism and their beliefs was metempsychosis yeah. and a lot of the you know pythagoras and buddha that concept in 500 bc was more placed around the concept of um metem metempsychosis which is the concept of karma, and, and there are two thought processes. One thought process is if you do bad things and the karma attaches to your soul in your next life, and so this karma goes back. And if it attaches to your soul enough, when you come back in your next life, you will be an animal and you'll have to work your way back up again to attain enlightenment. But there is and also a thought that if you get enough karma, you become an animal because that's considered enlightenment. So... But, yes, very much so. You didn't want to eat meat because you might potentially be eating a friend or a relative. The 1800s was very, very different. They truly just believed it was sinful and it defiled people. And the biggest concern about this defiling was the concept of masturbation. So, you know, there's there's a headline out there if people want to Google it. You know, Kellogg's was part of an anti-masturbation crusade. I did not make that up. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, John Harvey Kellogg. Definitely kicked off that movement with his, um, you know, libido lowering cereals, um, yeah. which is just an insane idea. <laughs> it is an insane idea. But then when you think about it, John Harvey Kellogg was 12 years old when he went to work for the first family of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So he was only 12 when he was typesetting their pamphlets because unlike we have got social media now, we can talk, but at back in the 1800s, everything had to be printed. If you wanted anyone to know about anything, you could speak for sure. But taking that message further was through the printed word. And and I think I jumped a little bit, but Ellen G. White took this health reform message, this belief that um, meat was a toxic stimulant as bad, if not worse, than alcohol, caffeine, spices, all these other things. Meat was the worst. Animal proteins and fats were provided the worst health outcomes and it was because she believed it defiled people. Right, based on her messages that she received from God. Based yeah. on the messages she received from God. And she, unlike Sylvester Graham and Caleb Jackson and other people, there were a lot of health reformers talking about it um, in America in the early 1800s, but she took this message into the church doctrines. 
she told the church that it was their mission, their responsibility to public health educate people on the harms of animal proteins and fats, flesh meat in particular, mm. um, and fat. So it it's created this incredible push. Medical evangelism, she taught, was the right arm of the church and their health reform message, the entering wedge, an entering wedge to open hearts and minds. Yeah, to liberate people from the burden of conventional thinking. <laughs> yeah, but also open hearts and minds to their version of the gospel. Yeah, of course. Because the Seventh-day Adventist church are a very apocalyptic church. They are praying for the end of the world. They, you know, this is the purpose of the church. It, they um, were formed because of the disappointment that Jesus didn't come back in 1844, which they'd followed a prophecy suggesting he would. And so their whole point is apparently Ellen was told that they're the spiritual children of Israel because if the real children of Israel back in the First Testament of the Bible had followed all of God's commandments, Jesus would have come back. So right. these are their, this is the last chance church to make this happen. And um, unless enough people give up meat, I don't know that everyone has to convert to Seventh-day Adventism, but unless they can tell people and have enough people give up meat, Jesus won't come back in their mind. So yeah. this is, and I think this is a, a really important point, this is bigger than a financial conflict of interest. This is salvation. Yeah. This is their salvation. They are not going to have eternity until enough people can give up meat. So back to John Harvey Kellogg, he was 12 when he was typesetting these things and the very first book he typeset for Ellen G. White was called A Solemn Appeal and it spoke only of de mothers deterring their children from masturbating and meat was considered the major cause. Yeah, that's this is such a bizarre link. But it's it's really funny as you're talking. I'm just thinking of um, clients I've worked with. I actually worked with a few Seventh Day Adventist clients okay. <laughs> that that whose diet, vegan diet for a very long time was causing them all sorts of problems. But mm -hmm. um, interestingly, though, sex uh, drive and libido mm -hmm. is actually a, a part of a very common set of. Uh, vegan uh, symptoms or side effects so it's kind of ironic that the origins of this movement were to lower uh, libido, you know, and libido. It's done it. <laughs> yeah and, and, it, and it has done it quite successfully but uh, mm. not in favor of the, the healthiest body or the best way to present yourself biologically speaking no and you have to remember when Ellen G White spoke about all of this messaging there were no alternatives to meat milk and dairy oh, sorry, meat, dairy and eggs, because they're the only things that provide a lot of the micronutrients and vitamins and minerals that we need. Yeah. So not only are they messaging about removing these things, but they have to work out how to do it. So is it any wonder when John Harvey Kellogg became a doctor, which they paid for him to do his training, that he became the superintendent of the Western Health Reform Institute and turned it into Battle Creek Sanitarium which went from a place that had about 40, the ability to house about 40 people to look after them in sort of a health retreat, um, to being able to have 1,200 people in this massive, like it was a massive hotel. It had chandeliers and gilded gold and paintings and like it was just incredible. Um, Rockefeller, Amelia Earhart, you know, Henry Ford, Kissinger, all these people went to the Battle Creek Sanitarium in the early 1900s because it was a health and wellness retreat. They learned how to eat vegan food and they learned how to 
abstain from sex. Like this was a really, really big part of this whole movement. And John Harvey Kellogg did it incredibly. He married a woman who I believe was probably one of the very first dietitians. Right. She trained in home economics and he was wanting to create all these foods, but they weren't very palatable. So she came in and <clears throat> helped tweak the recipes and make them better. But you know, he didn't just invent cereals. He invented nut butters and um, gooey legumes protos and, you know, in a can and you know, all of these slimy things. But uh, um, Lena Cooper was was actually the very first industry dietitian. She was a protege of John Harvey Kellogg and in her first book, um, Science and Cookery, I think it's called, she, if you bought the book, you had to buy Kellogg's products because it was how to cook nuttos, how to cook protos, how to cook all of these inventions that he'd made. And she was the one who founded the American Dietetics Association. Right. So you want to know how industry got into the very beginning of dietetics associations? Wow, yeah. there you have it in a nutshell. Seriously, it's, nuts it's, because that's what he loved. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a pun, nice pun there. <laughs> it was a nice pun. Um, <laughs> I so, haven't said it before. So, cool. <laughs> um, also, the the Dietetics Association of America was created um, by a woman who was John Harvey Kellogg's um, protege. And he was, in a way, the protege of the person that started the Seventh-day Adventist church. Yes. Okay. And Lena Cooper's brothers were devout Adventists. I can't find information to say whether she was, but I know her brothers were as doctors. Um, yeah. And But she was very, very um, embedded in that health reform message. And so her cooking books, not only did she write cookbooks, she taught 500 dietitians. Yeah, over 500 dietitians, and she wrote the textbooks for 30 years for dietetics globally. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Well, which I guess set set the benchmark for everybody else to reference, like yeah. which, which is definitely a problem in modern nutrition and medicine, um, is that we just reference stuff that's already there without really 
doing what you've done, which is like, where did the original idea come from? And we saw the same thing happen in the, in the fifties with Ansel Keys and the fat research, you know, and Mm -hmm. nobody, everyone just confirms what's published because it's like, oh, if it's published, it must be true. Exactly. And I looked at the, well, um, there was a guy called Reese Southern. He'd done amazing, uh, referenced research all about the foundings of the um, American Dietetic Association. So I can't take credit for all of that, but I was looking for it. So, and I found his website, but he uncovered as time went on how integral the Seventh-day Adventist Church got into the American Dietetics Association and creating the vegetarian um, position papers and things. They're actually um, a woman called Kathleen Zolba. I think it was about 1980, she was president of the American Dietetic Association as a devout Adventist. Right. And in her research that she'd been doing, she was working with a guy called UD Register as well, and they were trying to prove, not disprove, divine inspiration. Like that's what they'd written in the Adventist newsletters and different things that they had. So she was the president and, of course, the vegetarian position papers came out. And when you looked at who was writing those um, most of them were Seventh-day Adventists or food industry. So it made me think, well, what about the Australian vegetarian vegan position papers? Of course, they've all come, you can't, public can't see them anymore. I've ruined it for a lot of people, sorry. But <laughs> well, I, often joke, I often joke the podcast <laughs> should be called Maddie Ruins Everything. So <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in the right place. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, what I did was I looked at these and I went, wait a minute, not only Seventh-day Adventists, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church had written part of it. It was like the Adventist Health Ministries that had, you know, this is their whole purpose of being and Kellogg's, you know, can't lose out Kellogg's. So, and I said to a couple of dietitians, did you realise who have actually written these references? And uh, these are a couple of people who are very, very high up in dietetics and they said, you've got to understand the Dietitians Association of Australia, which now only calls themselves Dietitians Australia, which is the same because I can't fit nearly as many sponsors on two letters as I could three. <laughs> it looks so much better. But the Dietitians Association is not only the um, accrediting and regulatory body of dietetics, but it's the educating body. And when they put out things like the vegetarian position paper, dietitians are just going to believe it. Who has the yeah. time to go, oh, I'm going to check all these references? Mm-hmm. Did they understand or realise that they were completely written by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, their commercial food arm sanitarium, and their cousin, Kellogg's? So, um, yeah, that's all been taken down now, so you can't see it. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) Sorry. But you can still see on the Wayback Machine if you're clever to look. I was going to say, too, like the interesting thing about um, all of the sponsorship of the Dietetics Association, irrelevant of the country, really, because when we go back to the beginning, yeah, it's like we're looking at, you know, giant food companies like Sanitarium, Nestle, Freedom Foods, Mm. um, and from my own research, and, and I was in conversation with Marty Kendall about this yeah. because you and I, Belinda, went on some kind of similar rabbit hole journey for different mm-hmm. reasons, um, and Marty said, oh, you've got to talk to Belinda. But <laughs> I remember discovering that um, along that journey, so, you know, following the timeline, at some point in the the um, partnership agreements between the Dietetics Association and these giant sugar and grain companies was that they had to use the dietitian members, so the members of the association, to influence, protect and actively defend against uh, like on behalf of grains and sugar and all of these foods, which is like 
What? It's like they're building an army. Like that wording is implying that they're building an army. And you've got to understand this Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum was trading as hashtag cereal for brekkie. This was the group that came after my husband. Yeah, gotcha. It was during this time. I uncovered those documents because I thought one day, oh, I'm just going to look up Gary Fecky and Sanitarium. <laughs> who, who knows? And up came those cereal documents. Right. And I think what was fascinating was Gary was the only medical doctor targeted for active defence. They had a low-carb down under on there. They had Dave Gillespie, uh, Marianne DeMarcy, um, Kieran Rooney. Like, there was a name to few, but Gary was the only medical doctor. And within that time frame that those documents were collated, or sorry, the minuted meetings, the, D, the CEO of the Dietitians Association of Australia, the then CEO, wrote to Gary's hospital twice, demanding he be silenced. You know, we, we were able to get these documents under a freedom of information. Finally, it took years to get them because they kept sending things that were redacted, even redacted Gary's own emails to them. Like, it was right. so stupid. But finally, we got access to these documents. And so this was all under that agreement with the breakfast cereal companies. You've got the, you've got the expert witness working for Sanitarium. You've got Sanitarium demanding the dietitians silence these people. And this, it, it sounds not conspiratorial, but it's not. <laughs> and if I'd known for $23,000 that that's all that this group was paying the Dietitians Association to use their members, I would have done a crowdfund. <laughs> so, hey, oh. guys, let's, let's counter it. We'll give the DAA $23,000 if that's what they want and let's change the messaging. Yeah, it's crazy that it's only $23,000. Like it's bizarre that it's, you know, with these giant entities, the arrangement is just $23,000 a year. Like what mm. a cheap way to build an army. <laughs> what a cheap way. And I don't think a lot of dietitians, again, understand that when – the Dietitians Association says, hey, let's do a, a fun week of cereal for brekkie, post all your cereal for brekkie and do all this, that they're doing it because the, their peak body's being paid to run that campaign. And it's effectively a propaganda exercise absolutely. then. Absolutely, absolutely. So medicine's got a lot of pharma and pharmaceutical industries creating their education and how they prescribe and Band-Aid Sick Care, and then you've got the dietitians. Really, really, their education has been shaped by the food industry. So um, I I think just, you know, I've got so much in history, I would just bore the socks off a lot of people, so I won't go into it all. But if you consider how influential, in particular, the Seventh-day Adventist Church have been on shaping our dietary beliefs, our dietary guidelines, <clears throat> manufacturing foods to then take the place of these things. You know, this is amazing. I had no idea Ellen G. White came to Australia for 10 years to set up the the church, to set up the um, Sydney Adventist Hospital and, um, and the printing press and the food industry. In fact, her son married, she came here because her son married a Tasmanian girl. So, right. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I, I've actually been to America and I had to go and visit Loma Linda. Like it was yeah, just of on course. My, yeah, bucket list. I just said to Gary, please, because I've studied this woman for so long, I just really wanted to go and see some of the things that she saw that I've read about. You know, I've spent eight years delved into Seventh-day Adventist church, everything about it, and, and it was fascinating to go there and sit on that seat that she looked out over and see some of the things because I'm not saying she was 
came into all this because she wanted to be a bad person. She just had this belief. She'd had a very nasty head injury when she was young, when she was nine or ten. And so some historians and some people have theorized that potentially her dreams and things were a result of epilepsy or some sort of, um, you know, thing along that sort of um, seizure lines. Yeah. But you also have to remember at nine she became disfigured and it was a girl at school that had done it to her in a small community, so she never went back to school. So she finished her formal education at the age of nine. I think her parents must have been fairly well read because there's obviously a lot of books that she has read. But when she started talking about her visions from God, she became accepted into a group that suddenly started to look at her in a different way. And so as a 15-year-old, I think when she had her first vision and then 17, you can imagine suddenly she's in a room and people want to hear what she's going to say. And a lot of her visions came about after she'd sat in meetings that could have gone all day trying to discuss different theories about the church and where it would go and what what they would do and what they believed in and what they didn't. And then suddenly she'd have this vision and she would answer the question for them, oh, God's told me this is the answer. So, yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's, Again, the history is fascinating, it is. but she has become so influential. And if you look at what the Seventh-day Adventist Church is doing into the Pacific and, again, taking away all the animal proteins and fats, you know, telling people in the South Pacific that even fish is bad, um, you know, they've run this 10,000 toes campaign over there at the moment and they're teaching people to eat fruits, nuts and seeds. And, yes, fruit is probably a very big part of their diet. But then when you combine it with the processed carbohydrates that they're encouraging and the polyunsaturated oils, then you have, you know, it's no wonder people are starting to get fatter and sicker, 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 sicker over there as well. And yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to call it out because I'm very aware that <clears throat> this generation's group of Seventh-day Adventists have not only contributed to the demonization of animal fats in the Ansel Keys era um, and the McGovern report, but they're highly influential in trying to get the demonization of animal protein into medical education right now. Well, that was actually going to be my next question because something you said there was um, really rang true of all the people that I've ever worked with, which is mm -hmm. they're not intentionally causing harm like that most no. people get into healthcare, into wellness uh in order to do good and because they have good yeah. intentions um i mean of course there's you know there's a little bit of people that get into it for money and prestige and that's you know that's a part of it but yeah i've never met a doctor in the hospital that i worked in no. or a nurse that had ill intent um no. however when i started being the guy that was throwing around some of these ideas in the lab or in the on the ward i was looked at as a bit of a crazy person and so mm -hmm. so maybe like, where, at what point did this Seventh-day Adventist, um, you know, plant-leaning, um, vegan-leaning movement become medical education? Because I know from... Uh, just, 1900s, you know, but they started nursing education in the 1870s mm -hmm. and home economics in the 1880s, dietetics by the 1900s, and they found... Well, actually, no, they were, they were teaching medicine from, I would say, 1870, 1878, 1880, definitely teaching medicine. John Harvey Kellogg ran programs. Yeah, right. Because I know. Sanitarium. 
I know because the interesting thing to me is that like um, it's kind of a twofold thing. Like doctors, you know, like with Gary, it's like, what do you mean I'm not allowed to talk about nutrition yeah. to my to my patients? But on the other hand, it's like it's probably good we don't have doctors talking to patients about nutrition because they're so ill-informed and, and there's such a tiny portion of their degree that is focused on nutrition and metabolism in the way that maybe a nutritionist or a dietitian gets. However, all of the Never. education or the lack of education mm-hmm. is all supported by this sanitarium movement. And so when you do end up in a doctor's office and they go and get the, you know, the, the latest recommendations for whoever is in front of mm-hmm. them, they've, they basically got programs that are like funded and branded with sanitarium and with these big companies. And so yeah. the advice that they're handing to these unfortunately unwell sick people um, is just going to perpetuate the problem because they're actively trying to defend grains and sugar. And when I spoke to a GP about this back in um, 2017, 2018, um, a GP came up to me at a conference and he said, Belinda, I've just listened to this talk about Seventh-day Adventism and I I can't believe it. But he said, I've realised when I push my software button on my computer, sanitarium-branded fact sheets are coming out. And I think this has been a big part of it. If you look at the Sanitarium Health and Wellness branding, that's what they've done. They started their own nutrition education um, service. They called it a service, in, you know, in 1980. And so this idea of giving every doctor, we're, we're so brainwashed that they were printing these fact sheets off, fully branded as sanitarium, and the pregnancy one even had wheat bix on it. So it's, as I say, it's not only doing their... Um, you know, promoting their health reform message, but it's doing their business model no harm in the in the things they're giving. And for type two diabetes, it said spread your carbohydrates throughout the day, base your meals on carbohydrates. And at the bottom, it even said, "What about sugar?" Well, a moderate amount of sugar is okay, and it was endorsed by Diabetes Australia. And so, you know, this is really really concerning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Gary came across documents and found. Um, one of the original Diabetes Australia's um, handouts, a book on managing type 2 diabetes, and it was it was um, co-produced with the Sugar Association, <laughs> <laughs> branded on it. It's like, oh, my gosh, it didn't even have the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry back then. They were just happy with the sugar industry giving them information. Dietitians Association, Sugar Industry, and Diabetes Australia had written the guidelines. It's like, oh, my goodness. But... You know, how interesting in our society we can just accept that and it's not till you, you wake up. It's not till you wake up and you go, this makes no sense. Like Gary just says, he, he actually did a post. He was in 2015. He just put two hands up, wrote a big sign, I'm sorry. I have to apologise because I did not think about this enough and, I mean, in his role potentially he wasn't prescribing medication necessarily but he was certainly, you know, chopping off bits of feet and not being able to provide a solution to people. He was he yeah. had run out. There was nothing else he could do. So um, that's brave of him, though. Like I, I know, especially after the last two years uh, and everything we've seen unfold, you know, mm-hmm. and irrelevant of people's opinions. There's the point is that there's obviously someone controlling us and able to dictate things. And the one thing I've learned over that time is that 
a lot of people that have reached out to me have been like, you know, you're doing great work, appreciate you speaking about truth, but I just can't, I just can't be a part of it. Um, and so for Gary to be able to have the courage and, and yourself to be like, I'm going to put my own head on the chopping block um, in the name of truth. I think it's so incredibly admirable because there's so many people that feel the same that just yeah. don't have the courage. Well, I think when Gary got his determination back from the second medical board that completely threw it out in one week and he actually got a formal written apology from the APRA mm-hmm. National Board and in that it, it pretty much said, you know, this will never be investigated again, you know, and I think it, it gives hope to people to be able to talk about nutrition. And when I say Gary was talking about nutrition, in the beginning it was just reduced sugar. He can tell people not to smoke. He can tell people to reduce smoking or, you know, that's not good for your health because he understands what it does to people's, um, you know, their blood vessels and things with surgery. So it was compromising their outcomes. So he can talk about that and he's not a respiratory physician. He can talk about, you know, I think you should be doing some exercise, doing some a uh, little bit of um, resistance training, do these things. And he's not an exercise physiologist, but he wasn't allowed to talk about re- reducing sugar because he wasn't a dietitian. It's like, um, no, this is actually <laughs> basic public health messaging. And now here we are nearly 10 years later, or 11 years later, mm-hmm. and a lot of people know sugar's harmful. But, you know, then you look back through history and where's this message being dampened? I did a recent talk um, for Women's Health Summit on the weekend and this the concept around, you know, John Yudkin, he was speaking about the harms of sugar. He believed in 1971 and, and back into the 1950s, he was talking about the correlation that he believed was between sugar and heart disease. And then you had Ansel Keys fighting, being paid by the sugar industry, funded yeah. by the sugar industry, to minimise the harms of sugar and instead demonise animal proteins and fats. And I think that's where a lot of my research just started to show this incredible symbiotic relationship that, you know, we've got the public health messaging from the food industry, and I'll talk specifically about Coca-Cola and cereal and and things like that, but their message is to minimise the harms of sugar. You know, know, we don't want to talk about that. And then you've got the Seventh-day Adventist Church who want to promote the Garden of Eden, fruit, grain, nuts and seeds as the God-appointed diet for man. So they don't necessarily correlate but if you think about what they agree on, it's the demonization of animal proteins and fats that then they can happily talk about this plant-based messaging mm-hmm. and they're aligned and, and they shouldn't be, but they've become more and more involved with each other and the relationship goes back to the 1950s or 1940s, in fact, when one of the devout Adventists who wanted to prove, not dis- to prove divine inspiration and create foods and talk about the health benefits of vegetarianism was he went to Fred Stair at Harvard University from the College of Medical Evangelists. So that was what um, Alan G. White founded, Loma Linda in California. And he went to Harvard and he said, mm-hmm. I want to do a PhD study under you, Fred Stair, to talk about the health benefits of vegetarianism. Well, all I can think is, can you imagine Fred Stair's face when he was being paid by the food industry? Like millions and millions of dollars worth funneled into Fred Stair's Harvard School of Public Health from the food industry. It was founded by them. So he's got all these food industries and this man just walks in with a purpose, no yeah. financial conflicts of interest, and he wants to prove it. You go, 
Hallelujah. <laughs> so the very first vegan vegetarian research papers were the collaboration between Mervyn Harding and Fred Stair back in, and they were published in the 1950s. So that again, then you take that through and now in my research um, I've been specifically looking at the the concept of the brand lifestyle medicine. And again, the expert witness in APRA Medical Board, um, he took me to Sanitarium because he was working there that I can document from 2000 to 2016 in two different advisory roles, probably further back, but the internet didn't go further back and you know, I'm not clever enough to get all the information. So uh, he took true. me to Sanitarium. His wife, <laughs> his wife works for the International Life Sciences Institute, which is ILSI, founded and funded originally by Coca-Cola in 1978. So she works for pretty much the conglomerate of food industries. He worked for Sanitarium and he was presenting at the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. He was their patron in 2016 when he was Mm -hmm. determining Gary couldn't talk about things. So I've done a lot of research into him and this concept of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, then I went back to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and its founding. And it was actually founded as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine on the Loma Linda University campus, the Seventh-day Adventist campus in America um, in 2003. It became the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in 2004 and now they've got the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine. They run exam programs all around the world. They connected up with um, head people in Coca-Cola in 2009, <clears throat> which is why I had to talk about you know this public health messaging. Why on earth would the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who really are quite anti-sugar, anti-caffeine, why would they join up with Coca-Cola. Yeah. This makes no sense. And so if you join the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and I know they don't love it that I talk about it, there's some really good people in there, really, really good people who want to make a difference, want to talk about all the lifestyle issues and better sleep and mental and all those other things. But the dietary health message that they promote is based on the one that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine have written, which is the Seventh-day Adventist fruits, grains, nuts and seeds, you know, demonise animal proteins and fats. It is a vegan, vegetarian diet. And some people have joined the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine because they're vegans or have ethical beliefs about this diet as well. But when you do the exam, when you become an official member of the international board, you are purely seeing exams written by devout Seventh-day Adventists and people who are intricately tied to Coca-Cola. And that, to me, is very concerning, And which is where I've spoken to you about you know, 50 years ago, medical students feared cholesterol, feared fat. Yeah. And now this medical education that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and LMED, which is sort of the Coca-Cola arm of all of this, um, is writing medical education that's in at least eight universities in the US. And I know the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine are really pushing hard for it to get into our medical education. And I just think... You, know, you you can't talk about this without the understanding, the transparency. Where's this messaging coming from? Why is it so important to this group of people? And as you say, Maddie, it's about transparency. Yeah. You know, I, I just want to talk about this belief that's becoming so embedded in our society, especially in America, but it's embedding here too. And, and we need to just challenge this anti-meat messaging is it truly about health or is it about something else? Is it vested interest protecting profits and a profit? 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's transparency is so important. And I think fundamentally it's the the amount of things that are presumed. Like literally from when we're all born, there's certain things that we're raised with by our parents mm-hmm. or our environment that we just presume to be true because it's because it exists this way. Yeah. And I, I found that to be true um, in the hospital environment that nobody ever questioned the system because there was there's this romantic idea that the the system wouldn't exist if it wasn't the best possible version of what could be true, especially being in a country like Australia, which is obviously, you know, one of the best countries in the world to be in. And so it's, it's like, there's no corruption here. There's no ill intent here. We live in Australia. We're free. It's really lovely and nice, um, which arguably is the perfect setting with a a population of people um, that just presume that everything's hunky dory (laughs) that yeah, it's the perfect scenario to be doing all these business deals on the back end. Um, And and I think, yeah, when you start piecing this together in the way that you have, and and we see this undercurrent of organizations owned and run by these people that have a particular uh, belief system, everybody that was born beyond that, just presume that this was the best version because it ex- existed when they were born <laughs> or when they went into their job. Um, and this just, this assumption, it just totally, I think it's probably the the cause of a lot of the problems because there's probably plenty of people that are curious about like, oh, yes. this kind of doesn't make sense. Um, but, oh, well, we'll keep doing it. Um, and mm-hmm. actually, before I did leave the hospital, I had a number of doctors after meetings come up to me and sort of secretly say, so I've been listening to your podcast <laughs> and yeah, like I, I don't want to say anything to anyone, but it's pretty good. Like I'm learning a lot and I'm like, how are you learning a lot? Like that's <laughs> the problem. the same. <laughs> Gary's an orthopedic surgeon. He'd walk down the corridor and he'd have a cardiologist come up and say, look, actually, you know, I'm really worried about my cholesterol. Quietly, can you just have a little chat to me? Because, you know, Gary did, he spent, I would say, six years doing a thesis on, mm. you know, um, biochemistry and Metabolism. In fact, um, there was a guy in Sydney Uni reckoned that Gary was his most enthusiastic student in understanding all this because he suddenly had a, a purpose and a reason to do it. Um, mm-hmm. wasn't young and just wanting to learn the books and pass exams. Gary wanted to get to the bottom of everything. So is that yeah. the same, Matty? <clears throat> yeah. And and speaking up's hard. Um, I I think I, I love this story and sort of this is a good way to finish up. But um, there was a guy called Harvey Wiley. And he was a chemist and put in charge of the um, food, and, the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, I think, in America. And he was looking at additives in in flowers and additives in meats, you know, sausages and things like that. He was challenging a whole lot of things. But Coca-Cola was his nemesis, and he was wanting to. Well, it still had cocaine in it at that time, a very small amount, but it had cocaine, very very high levels of caffeine and very very high levels of sugar, and he tried everything, like every level of um, Senate and government that he would get to. It got blocked, it got blocked, it got blocked. When it was finally passed, Coca-Cola still got around it and he ended up taking them to court in in 1911 because he just wanted to fight what they had and what they were marketing, what they are advertising. And he lost. So he threw up his arms. I'm not working for the government anymore. You know, policy is impossible to change, even from someone at my level. So he went to work for a women's health mag or a women's magazine, a bit like Women's Weekly, I reckon. And he said, I'm going to make far more difference talking to the women who are going to make the choices about what they buy and feed their children and their families than I can ever do trying to change policy. And he got, I think there was something like 20,000 women to march on par- on, the, on their government parliament. And that's why Coca-Cola had to take the caffeine, uh, had to take the cocaine out, 
And so I think this is really important. This is what you're doing. This is what I'm doing. Let's get to the people and educate people that they can actually make the choice about what they want to eat. They don't have to follow a policy that's been shaped by vested interests. You know, we can make our own decisions. We can choose what we want to eat and nourish and feed our families and ourselves. And hopefully the movement gets big enough that industry has to change because that's what we're demanding. Yeah. I love that story. And that's a big part of like my, my, um, what I do and the mission statement of my own business because, yeah. yeah, it's like we're in this generation of kids that are looking like they'll live shorter lives than their parents. Um, and, yeah, the best way to, to shape the future health of the planet is, yeah, mums that feed kids basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I love, I love it because every time there's a revolution, a lot of people think you have to have a majority. It's like got to be 50 or 60 or 70% of the population, 20,000 people, you know, marching on, on the steps of parliament. Like every yeah. revolution in history is a tiny proportion of people being really yes. loud. Yep. So it's so cool. And, and you can't ignore it anymore. Yep. When it was the public, the voting public, they couldn't ignore it anymore. And, yeah. you know, this is an opportunity, I think, for all of us. To, and this is why Gary and I have never stopped we were in a position where he'd been, um, you know, he'd already been doing orthopedics for well, 25 years, I think, and um, when things were getting really touchy at the pointy end of everything, and he just said, no, I refuse to stand down. I refuse to cause harm to my patients. I've seen this. This brings joy back to medicine. You wouldn't know, Matty. You see people yeah. start to get better and you go, this is what it's all about. This is why I came into this. I didn't come into it to get funneled into band-aiding sick care and lose lose my passion for what I'm doing, lose everything. Like it, it's just it's a funnel and it's a dark funnel. So yeah. I think being able to empower people and and see them improve their health. Like we had we had um, a dietetic clinic for a little while, Nutrition for Life, and our diabetes educator told me she skipped down the hallway. So I've never I've been in a nurse, a diabetes educator and a nurse for 25, 30 years and I've never skipped at work. And, you know, that's that's the exciting thing about all of this. And to think that we've got policy that refuses to allow it. I mean, James Mickey, how amazing is he? He's yeah. gotten the, um, the diabetes guidelines to at least include the option of a therapeutic carbohydrate reduction as a tool. And I mean, Gary's been very loud for a very, very long time, but James Mickey just, he's gorgeous and he just, he's got this amazing persona and he's persuasive, but he's just, I mean, he's he's determined, but he just comes across in a very different way. And I think, you know, Gary, Gary's always said, the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land. Um, but James Mickey has done some amazing things and he will continue to do amazing things in this space. And I'm, very, very excited to see just little chinks in the armour and that's what we need. And this is this is because the voting public are challenging this. Yeah, absolutely. And and I yeah, I totally agree with that um that uh phrase about getting the arrows. However, <laughs> without those people, the settlers would have nowhere to land. So everybody <laughs> plays their role, you know. So yes. ah, Belinda, you're so fantastic. And I've like, I know there's so many things that we could talk about. We could probably do a whole podcast series. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we probably could. Where, where can everybody find you and everything that you do online? 
Well, at the moment, I have my website, isupportgary.com, yep. which goes into a lot of my research. I am in the process, and I'm, I've been talking about it for a while, but I have got a, a website, belindafecki.com, which I intend to pull aside and, and create more of a just a, a, a base that people could actually take research from. It doesn't always talk about Gary. Yep. He's very important. Mm-hmm. I do support him. And, um, and I guess I'm on LinkedIn pretty um, – passionate on LinkedIn actually it's been a very good platform I think I started off as a photographer on Facebook back in 2007 yeah and so in my past life I was behind the scenes telling other people's stories and so it was a bit confrontational to have to step beside Gary and then to actually take a step in front of him to to um, clear his name and give him his voice back but yes yeah, so I'm on I'm on Facebook and I think I just changed my name because someone was challenging me I, I took over Gary's Gary Fecchino fructose page when he was silenced and I became Belinda Fecchino fructose, but I don't really talk that much about sugar. So I've changed it to Belinda Fecchino low carb healthy fats, but I think if you do Belinda Fecchino fructose, you still find me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Instagram and I do a little bit on Twitter, but not a lot. I was yeah. on Twitter a lot more years ago, but it's such a, I, I pop on to see because I think it's a, a place where you can capture a lot of really right now conversation mm-hmm. and find out things, but it's, um, it's very busy and the whole thing just takes too much time in the end. You, yes. You've got family and everything else and the research you want to do. I'm doing some work with Nina Tysholz and um, oh, nice. Claire McDonnell-Lew at the moment. We're writing some articles about the latest Austra- revision of the Australian Dietary Guidelines. So yeah. that And it does take a long time to do the research. So I'm on social media but I'm also still researching a lot. Yeah, great. Um, all right, before we wrap up, I've got two quick ones for you. Yeah. Um, I think you're going to be a particularly interesting person to ask this question to. Um, what is one thing that you believe now that you didn't believe five years ago? Um, five years ago. Well, actually, five years ago, I never thought Gary would have his name cleared. Well, that's a great thing to have changed the belief <laughs> of. <yeah. laughs> um, and the final one is what is one piece of health information from the journey you've been on and all the uncovering of the truth what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? I'd say looking into Western A price and nourishing traditions, looking back at ancestral diets and the health benefits in this talk that I've just done, you know, this concept of minimising processed foods and trying to source foods as local and natural and seasonal as possible provides us with the best health outcomes. And it supports, it supports local farmers and, and, and becomes more of a community. Yeah, totally. Belinda, thank you so much. You're, You're so great. I can't wait to get this out to everybody. Um, <laughs> hopefully, so. we can, hopefully we can catch up really soon and do another one at some point. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the 
presented that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information. It cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.